to thank you and praise you for being with us today. We long for your presence because we know that you are present. And so we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to you. And may this time truly be a blessing to each of us as we draw closer to you, to one another. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. I invite you to share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. Perhaps introduce yourself to someone you don't know. It is great to see you as we gather for worship today, and uh, there's a couple things to, that I want to mention in your bulletin. Uh, 
Tuesday at 6, I'm uh, hosting a membership class. And if you've already contacted me, you're on that list uh, about coming. If you haven't, let me know. If you'd like to come, let me know tomorrow so we can make preparations. If you want to come at the last minute, that's all right as well. If you have questions about the class, uh, you can talk to me after service today or uh, contact me tomorrow or Tuesday, and I can uh, bring you up to speed with that. And then uh, you probably noticed as you came in uh, that we didn't quite get enough volunteers to help with the Wednesday night program, so we postponed it a few weeks. But we are looking for a few more people to help with that, and I would encourage you to really give some serious thought about helping our children on Wednesday nights, a couple of nights a month, uh, over the course of the rest of the year. So be in prayer and uh, about that. If you're interested, you have questions, uh, you can contact uh, Emily Hoffman or any of us, and we'll get you directed uh, to uh, answers through uh, her and others who are involved. This is a Sunday when we uh, take a few moments to uh, offer prayer of commissioning on those who are doing ministries in the church, which are a lot of people. And uh, you may think, well, I I only do this, but everything's a ministry of the church. There are people involved in working with children, with youth, various adult ministries. There's ministry of prayer, ministry of the food pantry, other kinds of outreach that we do. There, There are committees that you serve on, all kinds of ways that we use our gifts and our talents to come together in ministry. So... I want to take a moment and invite those of you who are involved in ministry to please stand, and then I would like to offer a prayer for you. Lord, we want to thank you for every person standing here before us today. We know that you are pleased with their willingness and their spirit to serve. Most of all, we pray, Father, that you will help them to sense their reliance upon you and your grace at work in them. We pray that you would bless them with grace and strength for all the tasks that are before them. And we pray that you will give us glimpses of fruit from our service that we do to others and that we do for you. We pray, Father, that you would fill every person involved in ministry with joy in serving you and in serving one another. And may that joy be contagious and be a means of inspiring each of us into further ministry for your kingdom. We pray, Father, that you will be glorified in our lives and our ministries as we work together to bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Be glorified in our service. And we offer it to you and pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has given to us.
prayer, that uh, expressing the longing of our hearts for Jesus. As we continue in the spirit of prayer, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me.
Father, as we come to this moment of prayer, our souls long for Jesus. We long to be embraced in the loving arms of Jesus. We, we long to hear the words of love and grace of Jesus. We long for our spirits to be encouraged and upheld by Jesus. We long for the forgiveness and grace of Jesus. And we thank you that in him we experience fullness of life and joy and blessing and grace and all that our hearts yearn for. Thank you. Father, this morning we, we long for Jesus in the midst of, of the difficulties and the trials and the burdens of life. We pray, Father, that through Christ you would be present in all among us who are grieving today. Pray for your comforting presence. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns. We pray today for Mildred Berry, Doris Asepian, Blanche Weaver, Tammy Dunmire, Luke Heisinger, Wade Marsh, Sheldon Emerson, Bob Jobert, Laurel Buecher, Bill Getty, Warren Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Beverett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and others on our minds and hearts today. And ask for your healing grace in each of them. Father, we pray for uh, the ministries of this church. And we thank you for all the ways in which you are at work through the ministries of this church. We continue to pray for our children's ministries and the nurturing of the faith of our children. We pray that you will bring uh, volunteers and touch our hearts to, uh, to be involved in helping our children know you. We pray that these ministries to children will truly be life-transforming for them. We pray, Father, for churches around us. And we think today of the Allentown United Methodist Church and Pastor Hudland. Pour out your spirit upon her and this congregation that they might know your grace and your presence with them. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of the Powerhouse Youth Center in Fillmore. All of the activities and programs and the students that are being touched and, and changed and introduced to you. Lord, we pray that you will continue to bless the staff, all the youth involved. And, and we pray for the financial needs, for all of the concerns of this ministry. We pray that you will be at work and that your grace will be poured out upon everyone involved in every circumstance of the ministry. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for continued healing in, in the racial unrest and difficulties and the struggles that we see, Lord. We pray that, that you would help us and the church to be, to be catalysts for healing in every way in which we are divided as people. We pray, Father, for people recovering from recent disasters and terrorist attacks, not only here but throughout the world. We pray for refugees around the world and ask that you would bring peace and grace to them. And, Father, we pray for your church in Egypt. And as this new official has been appointed, we pray that you will give to him grace and wisdom to monitor, to keep peace, the church in Egypt will remain strong and faithful to you. 
and that they will know the, the, the support, the love, the care of your people here and around the world. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We pray that you will give us grace to live in the truth of your spirit with us. And we ask this through Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Following the scripture reading, Children's Church and uh, Junior Church, the children are dismissed for that. Uh, This morning I'm going to be reading from Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7, and Galatians 5, um, verses 1 through 10. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised... Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Please stand as we sing together. sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope with no place to begin, your love made a way to let mercy come in, when death was arrested. 
rested and my life began. Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to death. When death was arrested and my life began, oh, your grace. I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom you faithfully bore. He canceled my debt and he called me his friend. Oh, my death was a ransom my life Rejoices though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested, my life began. That's when death was arrested, my life began. Oh, 
Please be seated. Contrary to what sometimes we think and others think, God doesn't force himself on any of us. He doesn't, um, he doesn't force himself, he doesn't force his desires on us. He calls us, he welcomes us, he invites us, he encourages us. But he never forces himself on us. And that is as true when we talk about freedom as anything else. God created us to be free. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, you get this sense of of God creating human beings and sets them free in the world. And, And there is this tremendous amount of freedom that God gives them. And that is his desire for all of us, that we would live in freedom. But he doesn't force that freedom on us. He invites us to it. He welcomes us to it. And this is what we find in, when we read through uh, Galatians chapter 4, and it talks about how because we're in Christ, because of what Christ has done for us, we have relationship with God and we are set free even to have the kind of intimacy with God that we can call him Abba, Father. And when you get to chapter 5, verse 1, he says, it is for freedom that you've been set free. The very purpose of being set free is so that we live in freedom. And to live in freedom, Paul tells us, is really to have Christ fully developed in us. In chapter 4, verse 19 of Galatians, this is exactly what Paul says. Paul says, I wish, I'm going to keep worrying about you. I'm going to keep, keep following you. I'm going to keep on you until I see Christ fully developed in you. What he's really saying is that is what it means to be free. That Christ so lives in us, controls us, rules our lives, reigns in us, is developed in us and matures us that we find freedom in him. And one of the words we use to describe that is holiness. It is being like Christ. It is being so filled with Christ that we actually begin to look like Christ. And that is God's design for us, and that's freedom. That we live in the kind of freedom that that we we can follow Christ, and we can be filled with Christ, and we're open to Christ. And that's his design for us. It seems like all of us who have any inkling toward Christ would say, that's exactly what I want. I want that kind of life. I want to have that kind of intimacy with God that I can call him Abba Father. That we have that kind of relationship and closeness. And hopefully we've experienced that. But the struggle that Paul is is dealing with with the church in Galatia is that they have experienced that. And for some reason, they have now decided to give it up. They have decided that that they like life the way it was more than they like it the way it is. 
And so in a sense, this whole letter is about writing to the Galatians and saying, what happened to you? When you go back to chapter 1, Paul is incredulous in verse 6. He says, what happened to you? Who tricked you? How did you get, who mesmerized you? Who changed you? What happened to you? You are so, you're being so foolish. You are giving up freedom in Christ. You're giving up the mature kind of intimacy with God to do what? To follow rules. Because at the heart of the this, this problem in Galatia is that some, some Jewish Christians, probably from the church in Jerusalem, have come to the churches in Galatia and have said to them, if you really want to be holy, if you really want to know the blessing of God, if you really want to understand intimacy with God, it's through obeying the Mosaic law. It's through obeying all the laws that have been set up to help obey the Mosaic, Mosaic law. It is about being connected to the rules. And if you get connected to the rules, if you follow the rules, if you do all the things that you're supposed to do, then you'll find blessing. Then you'll have intimacy with God. Then you'll know what it means to be holy people. And Paul is saying to them, no, that's not it. What I find when I read this kind of stuff with Galatians, it's sort of like I feel when I read the Old Testament about Israel. God rescues Israel from Egypt, from slavery, 400 years of slavery, and this horrific conditions they're in there. And, and through Moses, he rescues the people from that slavery miraculously. The plagues, and then parts the Red Sea, and they walk across on dry land, and they are set free. And it isn't hardly any time at all that they start complaining that God isn't doing for them what they want him to do. This isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. And what is it they say? They say, oh, if we only were back in Egypt. Life in Egypt was so much better than this. And what did they remember? The vegetables they ate. The, the food they enjoyed there. They have totally blocked out of their minds that they were slaves. And when I read Galatians, I sort of feel the same thing, that the church is forgetting. They were in slavery, and now they've been set free. And there's something in us that struggles to live in freedom. We all wrestle with it, even after we've experienced it. I read recently about a, a 70-year-old man who had been in prison most of his life, and he'd gone before the parole board, and they offered him a parole. And with tears running down his cheeks, he turned it down. Because he said, I've been in prison so long, I don't think I could make it in the outside world in freedom. There's, and we listen to that and we think, wow, who would turn down freedom for enslavement, for prison? And I think that's the very same question Paul's asking each of us. What ends up happening for us is that we get our priorities out of place. We start thinking that the priority of, of being a follower of Jesus, the priority of being a Christian, the priority of moving us forward in life is perfect obedience. Now, there is certainly a place for obedience. Scripture talks to us all the time about obedience, 
obeying God, doing what God desires. Even here, Paul says, stand firm in your freedom. He's asking them to obey. But there is this subtle difference between living a life of obedience and living a life in relationship with God that's based on trust. Paul says in, the, in chapter 5, verse 6, he says, really what we're talking about here is the kind of relationship that's about love. That's what faith, expressing itself in love, that's relationship. That's the kind of relationship we want with God. But you have come to the place, he says to them, and I think he's saying to us, that you believe the way to, be, to get to be holy, the way to get to the place where you, you, your life is mature, is to live in perfect obedience. And that would be fine, except that none of us can live in perfect obedience. Nobody can live in perfect obedience. Scripture tells us there's only one person who has ever lived on this earth in perfect obedience, and that was the Son of God. You look through the Scriptures, the very best of God's people do not live in perfect obedience. Far from it. And so what ends up happening is, when, when that's our goal, when that we believe that is the means to getting to the end, we start doing exactly what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. When God says to Adam, don't eat from this one tree, he interprets that, and Eve interprets that when he tells her, in some way it gets to, we're not allowed to touch the tree. And what they're really saying is, we're not sure we can exist in the garden without eating the fruit. So let's build a fence around that rule and make another rule so that we don't even touch the tree. Because then if we don't touch the tree, we can't eat the fruit. And I suspect that if it kept going, they would have said, okay, so let's make a rule that we're not allowed to, to look at the tree. Because if we look at the tree, we might touch the tree. And if we touch the tree, we might eat the fruit. So the rule now is don't look at the tree. Well, we were tempted to look at the tree. So let's make a rule. We're not allowed to get within 500 feet of the tree. And that way we won't look at the tree. And you can see how it just keeps going, going, going. And that's exactly what happens in much of the, of the Jewish law. Is that the, God says, this is what, you're, what I want you to do. And they start building laws and rules and fences around that so that they don't do that. But what ends up happening is the core law of God gets forgotten and all they live is this. And so you get to New Testament scriptures and and you find that that by the time you get to the New Testament, there are all these laws about what you can do and what you can't do on the Sabbath. So much so that people have to, to count the number of steps they take because you can only take so many steps on the Sabbath. Or you've broken the law. So when you get to, and you only do so, much, so many things on the Sabbath, or you break the law. And so you come to these arguments that the Pharisees and the religious leaders have with Jesus about him healing people on the Sabbath. How did, you, how did they get from, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy in the Ten Commandments, to Jesus, find another place, find another time. There's six days of the week for you to heal people. Don't be doing that on the Sabbath. We keep making these rules because we're thinking about perfect obedience. It's what I see in the Good Samaritan story. You know, the man is on the road. He's, he's beaten, robbed, left for half dead. And along come two religious leaders, one at a time. And both of them cross to the other side of the road. 
and bypass this man. And we don't know exactly why they cross, but I suspect one of the reasons at least is if they, if they go over and look at the man, if they touch him, maybe he's dead. And if you touch a dead body, in, in, in according to Jewish law, you are now unclean to go to the temple and to sacrifice and to carry out the law. And so in a sense, they've broken the law. And the law is more important than compassion. And this is the dilemma in which we find ourselves sometimes. When the goal, when, when we, we are striving is perfect obedience, we really don't care that much about people. We aren't able to care about them because all we're thinking about is, I've got to be perfect, I've got to be perfect, I've got to be perfect. And that is not only impossible, it is discouraging. It's despair. And that ultimately leads to living a life with a very judgmental spirit about ourselves and about other people. It leads to a critical spirit of they're not doing it right. I need to tell them that. They're not doing things the way they should. I'm going to tell them that. And it always leads to that because this this sense of, of perfect obedience, this sense of perfection always leads to a critical, judgmental spirit. It never leads to God's intent for us, which is the Spirit's joy in us. In chapter 4, verses uh, 12 to 16 or so, Paul talks to them about when he first met the Galatians and when he first encountered them. And he says, I was sick. I was in trouble. You guys were awesome to me. Thank you so much. And you get to verse 15 and he says, where is that joyful, grateful spirit? That you felt then. I'm sure that at that moment when we first got acquainted, you would have given me your eyes if I needed them. You had that kind of spirit, that kind of joy, that kind of generosity. And the passage goes on to say, so who now turned you against me? What's happened? They've lost that spirit of generosity and joy. And that always happens. Because Perfection, living for perfection, trying to be perfect, always leads to a judgmental, critical spirit. It always leads then not to joy, but to cutting us off from relationships and people and the sense of joy. That kind of following the rules, our life focused on the rules and on perfection never leads to generosity, never leads to gratitude. Just the opposite. Paul is saying, but I want you to be joyful. I want you to be free. And you're in bondage to this. What's happening? You're in bondage. I've been thinking about, about what are the rules? What are, what are the things? What are, what are the places where we wrestle with being in bondage once again? What kinds of things get into us that cause us to think that's the road to blessing instead of trusting the Spirit, instead of Christ? When I was young, and that may have been the case for some of you, in, in many of the, of, of the churches, it was judged by um, the kind of clothes you wore or didn't wear. It was judged by how whether you cut your hair or didn't cut your hair. 
It was judged by whether you wore jewelry or not. It was judged by whether you owned a television or not and went to movies or not. It, the, all of these things, these, these, were the, these were the ways that we judged whether people were really on the right track or not. And this was the checklist. And in essence, if you could check off the list that I don't wear those clothes, I don't cut my hair like that, I don't wear jewelry, I don't go to those places, I don't own this, I don't own that, then I'm holy. And it really had very little to do with how do I treat people, do I love. It had to do with the checklist. See, you know, we love checklists because in some ways it's easier. You can know. There is an instant judgment, an instant knowledge about whether you are doing things right or not if you've got a checklist. I'm checking it off. And you get to the end of that and you think, okay, I'm doing all right. Love, trust, a lot more nebulous. So, but I'm thinking a lot of those things we don't wrestle with anymore. So what do we wrestle with, particularly in the church? It got me thinking about a, something I read from one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell who said that he has a friend who is a pastor and he has really found journaling to be very helpful to his spiritual life. He has made it a daily practice that he spends a significant amount of time journaling, writing his thoughts and what God's saying to him and his prayers, and, and it's become a real important part of his spiritual journey, and it's helped him tremendously. But his professor said, every time you hear this guy speak and he talks about journaling, you sit there feeling like unless you journal, you can't really grow. And he said what what he's done is he's taken an experience that he has with God that's worked for him and made it a principle. And that's what we tend to do. And so maybe the things that we struggle with in terms of checklists and rules and perfection is that we say, unless you spend this amount of time reading the Bible every day, something's wrong with you. Unless you spend this amount of time praying every day, you're probably not, you're not going to grow. Unless you, you do these things, you're not going to grow. And they're not bad things. They're not bad things at all. I find it interesting in chapter one, verses, or 4, verses 8 and 9, he says to them, you used to worship idols. You used to, used to give yourself to these idols. And, and these idols were, were leading you astray. And you, you, you looked at the idols and you said, okay, if I pray in just the right way, I do just the right things, the idols become magic. And the gods have to give me what I want. So you're doing the exact same thing. If I check off the list, if I follow the rules, if I do what I'm supposed to do, God will give me what I want. God will do what I want him to do. And Paul is saying the second is far worse than the first. Where you are now is so much worse than where you were because now it looks like you're spiritual because you're doing spiritual things. Anyone can tell worshiping idols is different than following Jesus. The tricky part is you do the right things, but you do them for the wrong reasons. You do them in the wrong spirit. Should we be praying every day? Of course we should. Should we be reading scripture? Of course we should. Should we be involved in all the, in many spiritual disciplines? Of course we should. But not 
because there is something about those things that cause us to, that they're a checklist, but because we want to know God. We want to be close to God. We want to be in relationship with God. And that's our motivation. Just last week, last week ago Friday, I was in the mornings, I usually go out and either run or walk, and I use that time often to pray. And that particular morning as I went out and was getting started, my mind was just really thinking a lot about my sermon. And I was having a hard time really feeling like it was coming together and feeling like how it should fit together and the various things to say and not say. And I was really wrestling with it and almost beginning to feel a little bit of a panic about bringing it all together. And as I was starting out, all of a sudden some ideas began to come to me about my sermon. And I'm thinking to myself... I can't think about that right now because this is my time to pray. So I'm not going to, I can't think about my sermon because I have to pray. This is, this is my thing. I have to pray right now. And so I'm going along and all these ideas keep popping into my head. And it's as though the Holy Spirit keeps tapping me on the shoulder going, um, I'm trying to help you here with the sermon. I, I can't listen right now. I've got to pray. This is what I do. This is my ritual. I can't break the ritual. And all of a sudden I realized, yes, I can. I have freedom. And so I just said, Lord, you know all the things that I pray about. You know all the people and the circumstances and all the things that are on my mind and on my heart and the concerns of of family and church and friends and all these things. You know all these things. And this morning I sent your spirit saying to me, just give me those things and let me help you with this sermon. And that's what I did. But quite frankly, it took me a little bit of time to come to that because there was this sense of guilt that I wasn't following the rule. A rule I created. My own rule. What's <laughs> even God's rule? And, you know, we can get so wrapped up in we have to do things just right. That we miss God speaking to us. And what's most important is that we do things right instead of building our relationship with God, listening to God, being free with God. And as much as these things help us, they can become something that enslaves us if we aren't careful. There is a great danger in, follow, in, in believing that, that the rules are what get us to holiness and to freedom and to being like Christ. Here's, here's what I've discovered. In the same way that the critical spirit we wrestle with once causes us to look at other people and to judge them, when you start following rules, we start telling everybody else they have to follow the same rules. And it doesn't matter if God wants to speak to them in a different way, through a different means, and for them, him to create other avenues for that. We start becoming people who say, no, no, there's only one way to do this. And we put pressure on people. And we put it on them because we put it on ourselves. And what we end up doing is exactly what these Jewish Christians are doing to the people of Galatia. We start pulling them away. He says to them, you're running the good race. What happened to you? Who grabbed you? Who pulled you off the course? It made me think of the 2004 Olympics in Athens when the marathon runner from Brazil 
Delima was leading the race 35 kilometers in and, and a, a former Irish priest jumped out of the crowd and tackled him. And it, 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 you know, it, he got up and they helped him, but he ended up losing his momentum and finishing third. And it made me think of that. That, there, that, that these people have come and they've, they've sort of tackled the Galatians. And he says, what happened? And that's what ha- takes place. We want other people to experience, sometimes even for good reasons, but we still we try to impose what God has said to us on them. And the danger of that is that we start leading people to believe that following the rules is more important than relationship with Jesus. And instead of leading people toward Jesus, we actually lead people away from Jesus. And then I think about Matthew 18 and Mark 9 and Luke 17, where Jesus says, if anyone causes these little ones, these ones who are vulnerable in the faith, to fall away, it would be better if someone tied a huge millstone around their neck and threw them into the sea. There are serious consequences, not just for us, but for others as well. See, at the heart of this whole issue, heart of this problem, is that what we're really saying is what Christ has done for us is awesome. It's terrific. It's great. It's just not enough. What we're saying is, what Christ has done is good. It's just not enough. Because if I don't, if I don't add my work, if I don't add my rules, if, I, if we don't do these things, then we're never going to get to the holiness that God wants for us, to the freedom that God wants for us. And the minute we say that, we have said, in essence, Christ is unnecessary. And Paul says in Chapter 5, verse 4, you've cut yourselves off from Christ. Wow. And that's why it's so imperative to keep coming back to chapter 2, verse 20, which I think is kind of the hinge point of this whole letter. That he says, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. Who loved me, gave himself for me. It is always about Christ, always about Jesus. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, after he says, to, for freedom we've been set free and stand firm in your freedom, he says, don't, be, don't allow this yoke of slavery to be put on you. And that made me think of Acts chapter 15, where Peter says to the Jerusalem council, why are you now challenging God by burdening these Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors are able to bear? Why are you putting this yoke on them? Why are you enslaving them? Why are you putting them in this bondage? And I think Peter said that to the council because ringing in his ears, in the back of his mind, he heard, he remembered the words of Jesus Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, because my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
That's freedom. That's freedom. And that's God's desire for us. In one of his books, David Siemens tells a story about a a woman named Claire that he had been counseling. She struggled through probably most of her adult life with this whole idea of perfectionism, perfect obedience, rules, laws, legalism. And one day she said to him, this is what it feels like to me. So I feel like Samson in the Old Testament. And what she meant by that was not his strength, but at the end of his life, when he has given up the secret of his strength and and he's been captured by the Philistines and they have enslaved him and he spends his days chained to a bar that is connected to a huge stone wheel that he walks around to grind the grain for the Philistines. Hour upon hour upon hour, this is his life. And she said, that's what I feel like, that I'm pushing this bar, I'm walking around this wheel, and some days I'm able to go at a decent pace, but I keep thinking about all the ways I'm falling short, and I'm getting, I'm slowly slowing down, and I'm not producing like I should. And so I keep running and running faster and faster and faster. And the problem is, when I look down at what I've made, it's virtually nothing. And so it is just, feel, just a life of despair. And she said, it's no wonder that in the end, Samson just pulled the whole thing down upon himself. That's how I feel. And David said, I, I, he said, I looked at her, this woman who was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And he says, I prayed and pondered what to say to her. The words of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 came to my mind. And he said, I looked at her and I said, here's what Jesus says to you. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach Good news to the poor. He has sent me to give freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And something about hearing those words began to bring about a change in her life. That's what God wants for all of us. To live in such freedom that we can practice the spiritual disciplines that we need to practice out of joy and love and grace. And to be set free from perfectionism. To be set free from rules and checklists. And to live in the love and the grace Jesus. Father, this morning, uh, I think it's safe to say all of us wrestle with feeling moments of despair and anguish about measuring up, about doing enough, about perfection. Help us, Father, to see, to hear your invitation to freedom to relationship. May we all be set free through your grace. We pray this through Christ. Amen.
Please stand and join us as we sing.
wanted quickly to mention that we had the joy of two uh, new births this week. Uh, Upton Wardinger here this morning was born uh, earlier this week, and Jesse and Melissa Fink also had a little boy this week, and we give thanks to God for uh, these gifts of new life to our congregation. Receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.